Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to focus on one of the, the greatest transitions of the uh, 20th century, and that is the uh, economic transition towards what we now understand to be neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is a term that is, uh, if anything, overused, it, and like all terms like democracy, freedom, neoliberalism, globalisation, when it gets overused, it becomes so diffuse as to mean very little. <clears throat> so, how can we uh, understand neoliberalism? Well, neoliberalism is the uh, is, is, is a version of capitalism. Um, there is not capitalism, but various capitalisms. And this is a capitalism uh, which uh, relies on a kind of an orthodox, a free market orthodoxy, a belief that. Um, the state should have as little role in regulating market forces as possible, uh, and that uh, market forces, when left to run society, will form a natural e- equilibrium, that a kind of a, a perfect market conditions will be reached. But neoliberalism, which is, means really the, the new, the return of the kind of the economic liberalism, the free trade liberalism of the 19th century, has another facet to it as well. And it is the forced insertion of markets into non-market environments, which is really uh, a way of describing privatisation uh, when you imagine uh, the idea of market forces running in things that represent natural monopolies, such as gas supply, railways, probation services, um, and the, the normally almost exclusively disastrous results uh, that, that go with this, uh, then you're talking about uh, neoliberalisation. And the final facet of neoliberalism is financialization, um, the uh, use of debt as a kind of a potent social and political device. Uh, during the 1980s, across much of the developed world and the third world, Collective bargaining went into decline, partly as a result of confrontations with the with uh, the state and the political right, but also as a result of long-term social change. As collective bargaining, trade union power went into decline, wages also stagnated, but people need to keep spending and buying things, uh, and therefore 
uh, liberalisation of credit, cheap loans, credit cards, mortgages, car loans, that kind of thing, fill the gap. Um, Financialization has now trickled down to almost uh, every level of, uh, of modern life that involves debt, but it also it involves um, the, uh, the, the, the insertion of kind of finance into social and personal um, transactions and considerations uh, in, in a whole host of different ways. So uh, neoliberalism um, would be described by, for example, Antonio Gramsci as being a hegemonic concept. Um, the idea that, that there is that there is no other way. The idea that, as Francis Fukuyama put it, that we, you know, by the nineteen nineties, kind of reached an end of history point where liberal democracies and free markets had triumphed. Obviously, uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama is at re- recounting these ideas at great at great speed. Uh, uh, at the moment. Um, and a, a hegemonic idea is one of those concepts that uh, seeps so down, so far down into our, our ways of functioning and understanding the world that it, instead of it being a kind of uh, just a, a notion or an idea, it appears to be a kind of an, uh, a received truth. Okay, so today we're looking at David Harvey's Brief History of Neoliberalism. Uh, And he poses the question, why was it in the 1970s we get what you could call worldwide this neoliberal term? And he writes, The restructuring of state forms and of international relations after the Second World War was designed to prevent a return to the catastrophic conditions that had so threatened the capitalist order in the great slump of the 1930s. It can be said, fair enough, that uh, the 1930s, the depression of the 1930s, represent a, a crisis of capitalism, um, and the war that followed was a, a direct result of that. Harvey continues. It was also supposed to prevent the re-emergence of interstate geopolitical rivalries that had led to the war. To ensure domestic peace and tranquility, some sort of class compromise between capital and labour had to be constructed. The thinking at the time is perhaps best represented by an influential text by two eminent social scientists, Robert Dahl and Charles Lindblom, published in 1953. Both capitalism and communism in their raw fields had failed, they argued. The only way ahead was to construct the right blend of state, market and democratic institutions to guarantee peace, inclusion, well-being and stability. So what um, Harvey is talking about there are the, the Bretton Woods uh, instruments, the, the Bre- Bretton Woods institutions of the IMF, um, the World Bank, and what eventually became the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs, which also it, it evolved later into the World Trade Organization. It was originally envisaged that these three organizations would establish some kind of stability in world trade that it wouldn't allow huge imbalances of world trade and it wouldn't allow um, the debt to pile up. It would create a fairly level playing field uh, across the world which would be designed to ensure peace. In um, various um, first world uh, democratic states, 
um, a degree of social welfare was available. Um, for example, the, the British welfare state and even the, um, as the, the remnants of um, the, the continuation of the New Deal under the, uh, the Fair Deal under Harry Truman and the Great Society under Lyndon Johnson. Um, and they exist uh, they existed to an extent that for many people in the Western world is unthinkable now. So internationally, a new world order was constructed through the Bretton Woods Agreements and various institutions such as the, Inter the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements in Baal um, were set up to help stabilise international relations. So the, the general theory was that free trade um, that was reasonably well regulated, again, so there weren't huge uh, trade imbalances, was the best guarantee against a return to war. So free trade in this system was uh, uh, encouraged under a system of fixed exchange rates anchored by the US dollar's convertibility into gold at a fixed price. Fixed exchange rates were compatible with free flows of capital that had to be controlled, but by the um, but the US um, had, allow, had to allow the free flow of the dollar beyond its borders if the dollar was to function as a global reserve currency. This system existed under an umbrella of protection of US military power. So um, the uh, operating of world markets, the use of the dollar as a reserve currency for the world, and the guarantee that American military power and various kind of military alliances would keep the Soviet Union at bay, kept a relatively stable system from the 1940s, really all the way up to the 1980s. Now, the, um, the various states that emerged at the end of the Second World War, um, <clears throat> those that had been radically transformed by the war, um, the uh, British who had uh, become uh, bankrupted by the war, and whose uh, shift towards social democratic norms um, were encapsulated within the Labour government uh, of 1945. Countries like Japan that were reconstructed by uh, America um, in a kind of notionally democratic but highly bureaucratised state, um, a Christian democratic uh, Germany um, and uh, a, an America that with a brief Eisenhower lips or a kind of a Democrat hegemony from Roosevelt all the way through to 1968 and the, the rise of Richard Nixon. All these countries have one thing in common. And the thing they had in common was uh, a commitment to full employment um, and a commitment to economic growth based on the assumption that full employment would, all, would, would be uh, adhered to. And the idea that there would be some kind of social safety net, some kind of welfare for citizens, um, and that state power could be easily deployed and freely deployed uh, alongside uh, market forces if necessary. That where markets failed, and we were still in a, a kind of a, a Keynesian worldview that markets were flawed and imperfect uh, creations, uh, that where markets failed, uh, that states could step in to um, substitute for market processes. Um, and this would involve fiscal and monetary policies, taxing and spending, um, and controlling the money supply, which um, to which would basically iron out fluctuations in business cycles. So, 
instead of getting busts, you would use taxation and public spending to perhaps have small recessions. And instead of having huge unstable booms, you use taxation to take the heat out of the boom and put money aside for uh, a rainy day, basically. So you're, you're having uh, small ripples instead of huge, great roller coasters. David Harvey writes, Fiscal and monetary policies, usually dubbed as Keynesian, were widely deployed to dampen business cycles and to ensure reasonably full employment. A class compromise between capital and labour was generally advocated as the key guarantor uh, of domestic peace and tranquility. In Great Britain, for example, um, after the um, Labour victory of 1945, the Conservatives um, accepted, if however reluctantly, that they would have to uh, embrace the welfare state, they would have to embrace nationalisation, and they would have to embrace some degree of uh, union power in order for them to ever be elected uh, again. Um, and this shift towards the, the kind of the, the left of centre ground for the Tory party was encapsulated in a document in 1947 called the Industrial Charter, um, which uh, conceded that uh, the, the, the left had won the arguments uh, and that um, the, the Conservative Party had to change in order, however reluctantly, in order to compete electorally. So that kind of class compromise um, was um, seen as, as the price for the post-war system, not just nationally but internationally, kind of working. Um, and it held together for actually quite a surprisingly long time. David Harvey writes, States actively intervened in industrial policy and moved to set standards for, social, uh, for the social wage by constructing a variety of welfare systems, healthcare, education and the like. This form of polit political economic organization is now usually referred to as embedded liberalism. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To signal how market processes and entrepreneurial and corporate activities were surrounded by a web of social and political constraints and a regulatory environment that sometimes restrained, but in other instances led the way in economic and industrial strategy. State-led planning, and in some instances state ownership of key sectors, uh, coal, steel, automobiles, were not uncommon, for example in in Britain, France and Italy. The neoliberal project is to uh, disembed capital from these constraints. So, Throughout this period of time, there were neoliberal thinkers, um, uh, Friedrich von Hayek uh, and Ludwig von Mises um, spring to mind, um, and they were existed at the, the very fringes of economic discourse. What we see there is that there were definite limits on the power of capital to do as it chose. There were limits placed by governments um, on the the amount that capital could own, so there were things in if you take the example of Britain again that were nationalized, such as coal and the, the railways taken into interstate control um, and there was a a limit on what could be achieved in terms of of wage suppression when uh, there is abundant social welfare. Um, and um, strong trade unions, you generally tend to get quite a confident workforce. People know that they are quite well taken care of um, and they are less less fearful of um, wage discipline brought in, introduced by management um, and the uh, knowledge by trade unions that they have... Um, uh, quite a lot of leeway to uh, to strike. Uh, the question for neoliberal thinkers um, and for the, the think tanks that they spawned uh, by the 1970s was how you unpick this um, compact, how you unpick this sort of social compact between um, the, the population, um, the government, and to some extent um, industry. Uh, and economic crisis, of course, always presents opportunities for this to happen. Now, embedded liberalism, or the welfare state, actually um, produced significant economic growth throughout the 50s and 60s. Um, the uh, term in uh, France throughout the period was the uh, 30 glorious years from the, uh, the late 40s to the 1970s. Um, this was in part due to the largesse of America being prepared to run deficits while the rest of the world, um, with the rest of the world, trade deficits this is, uh, and to absorb any excess product within its borders. So America um, throughout the period was a net importer of goods um, and this was as a result of uh, the gold standards being somewhat unfairly fixed against America 
Um, and it is the decision in 1971 of Richard Nixon to rip up the gold standard that changes everything. Um, the Americans uh, saw a, a flow of cheap imports into America as being, um, in some ways, good for domestic living standards, but in other ways, useful to keep uh, client states who were um, part of the, the bulwark against the Soviet Union to, to prop them up, to, to give them, basically... Uh, buoyant economies because there's a nice, great, big, wealthy economy to sell things to. This system conferred benefits such as expanding uh, export markets, uh, most obviously for Japan, and, um, but also across South America and to some uh, countries in Southeast Asia. But attempts to export development to much of the rest of the world largely stalled. For much of the third world, for example, particularly Africa, embedded liberalism remained a pipe dream. Subsequent drive towards neoliberalisation after 1980 entailed little material change in their impoverished condition. Um, in advanced capitalist countries, Harvey writes, redistributive politics, including some degree of political integration of the working class trade union uh, of working class trade union power and support for collective bargaining, controls over free mobility of capital. Um, so uh, hot flows of capital in and out of countries and giving investors immense power over government policy. Um, expanded public expenditures and welfare state building, um, active state interventions in the economy, and some degree of planning and, uh, of development went hand in hand with relatively high rates of growth. What you create is um, a degree of stability and a degree of economic plurality. Um, you don't allow for investors to pull their money out of the country at the drop of a hat if there's a sniff of a tax rise. You don't allow for um, the returns on investments if you're building a motorway or a power plant to flow to a tiny, tiny number of people and make them fabulously rich and um, forget everybody else. This um, resulted in high levels of growth. Um, everything, for example, uh, to throw up a kind of a comparison um, that's happened after the economic crisis of 2008, uh, which largely benefited a tiny, tiny proportion, the, the so-called 1%, has led to virtually flatlining growth. The, the conditions are different, but there's, there is some comparison to be drawn. This um, business cycle um, was successfully controlled through the application of Keynesian fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, a social and moral economy sometimes supported by a strong sense of national identity, was fostered through the activities of an interventionist state. The idea that no one should be left behind, the idea that an interventionist state had a, um, a social and a moral role in ensuring a kind of a, 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 a economic pluralism. Um, the state basically became a force field um, that internalised class relations. So the state was able to um, kind of ameliorate class tensions, the class tensions between those that own capital and those that own the work and those that do the work, um, through direct intervention. By the end of the 1960s, embedded liberalism had started to fragment and break down internationally and domestically uh, um, in Britain, in America, in nearly every first world country. Signs of a serious crisis um, of capital 
accumulation were uh, everywhere. Um, the uh, beginnings of mass unemployment, uh, or the return of mass unemployment uh, in Britain by the um, mid-1970s um, was, was evident and the, the kind of the uh, emergence of a million unemployed by the late 1970s in Britain uh, showed that um, the uh, whatever benefits there had been from this kind of post-war compact, they had started to, uh, to fade away. Um, Harvey writes, Unemployment and inflation were, bo were, were both surging everywhere, ushering in a global phase of, of, uh, phase of stagflation, stagnation and inflation, that lasted throughout much of the 70s. Fiscal crises of various states, Britain, for example, had to be bailed out in, uh, by the IMF in 1975-76, resulted as tax revenues plunged and social expenditures soared. Keynesian policies were no longer working. Even before the Arab-Israeli war and the OPEC embargo of 1973, the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates backed by gold reserves had fallen into disarray. So typically... Um, and the explanation for the inflation of the 1970s um, uh, is that there were two oil shocks, one in 1973 with the, uh, the uh, Fourth Arab-Israeli War and one in 1979 with the Iranian Revolution. And these oil shocks, the oil producing countries, um, dramatically decreasing production, sending prices sky high um, to punish oil consuming countries and um, Western countries supportive of Israel uh, is seen as um, the, the beginnings of, of, of the woes of the, uh, the Keynesian world. But that's not the full story. Um, already um, the fixed exchange rate based on gold was starting to become untenable as trade imbalances began to, uh, be began to emerge uh, and also low investment economies um, that had uh, seen um, a, a long, long period of uh, dramatically increasing living standards um, had reached capacity um, and were struggling to, um, to grow uh, and to uh, create uh, additional capacity for new demand, uh, resulting, resulting in, in, in inflation. So... A meeting of crises in, in the mid-1970s led to inflation. You know, as oil prices go up, the cost of everything goes up. So wage demands go up, so union militancy goes up, uh, and so social unrest goes up. And on the sidelines, the new generation of neoliberal thinkers and uh, think tanks, um, particularly if you take, again, the example of Great Britain uh, and the emergence of... Um, a new kind of Toryism, as exemplified by uh, Margaret Thatcher, that was um, about ripping apart the social contract of the post-war era and ripping apart the um, uh, compromise between capital and labour, and by and, and actually presenting organised labour as the enemy, an enemy to be defeated, an enemy to be broken. So what we'll see. Um, after 1971, well, when we continue looking at this uh, in, in a week or two, um, is the, the rise of this economic thinking. And then after 1979, after a period of intense struggle in Great Britain, uh, and also in the United States, though uh, kind of 
um, is perhaps slightly less pronounced in America because um, the economic agenda was always slightly more in favour uh, of neoliberal thought there. But um, after intense struggle in Great Britain and the, the breaking of uh, the trade union movement, that opened up the British economy to the next wave of neoliberalisation and the, the next wave of um, economic experimentation with some predictably disastrous results. Okay, thanks very much. Now, I am posting uh, new stuff all the time on the Explaining History uh, Patreon page. Um, this week, I gave a review of Leo Panitch's uh, book, uh, The uh, Creation of Global Capitalism. Um, and if you want to check it out, subscribe, and it helps to keep the podcast going. It helps to make sure that I can continue to give you really good content every week. Um, and uh, I hope you found this useful and helpful. And I'll catch you all again on the Explaining History podcast soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.